such a quiet group tonight. There is a, a commonly repeated teaching that in some ways sizes up the entire um, Buddha's teaching and most all wisdom teachings. And that simple commonly shared teaching is it really doesn't matter what's happening. What matters is how you relate to what's happening. You've heard this. That's, the, that's Dharma beginning, middle, end. And I use this expression a lot. Every group I meet with, every, it comes up in almost every Dharma talk. But I often don't consider, reflect on, elaborate on what that actually means. And the more I thought about it today, I realized that that relate how you relate, that's the root of relationship that everything in our life, everything, every moment of our life, especially the determining factors of whether or not or how it is that we suffer, it has to do with our relationships. It has to do with our lost you. You went away, the mic went away. <laughs> it has to do, whoa, there we go. Our relationship with ourselves, our relationship with each other, our relationship to time, our relationship to the earth, our relationship to this body, our moods, our thoughts, our images, every experience. It is a question of, are we in a healthy or wise or loving relationship with these different dimensions of our life? Relationship is everything. And when I was reflecting on this, 
experience, oh, we lost it again. <laughs> when I was reflecting on relationship, my relationship to this microphone, <laughs> I realized that a microphone that goes on and off is what we would call in the Buddhist teaching dukkha, stressful. That which is, at least in a mild way, in a first world kind of way, hard to bear. And that's part of life, is, whoa. <laughs> that's part of life, moments. <laughs> moments like that. Very iffy microphones. That is a part of life. And the Buddha's teaching, of course, in terms of developing a wise relationship is to turn toward that. In other words, welcome these kinds of stresses. Because if you don't, if you don't recognize bad microphones as part of life, sorry, I should probably use another example. <laughs> If you don't recognize these issues as part of our life, when they arise, the second noble truth will follow. The first noble truth, there are things that are hard to deal with. The second noble truth is what compounds the essential stress that began with a, a microphone that doesn't work or a wheel that's out of round, or any number of things that happen to us in our lives. What happens if we, if we don't turn toward it, accept it, the stress of whatever it is is compounded, it is magnified by a tendency of mind a way of relating to our experience where we chronically want it to be different than the way it is. And into the mix of our experience, there's the microphone and its <laughs> funkiness, and then there's this, I want to have a perfect mic. There is greed in the mind and an attachment, clinging, liking, clinging, attachment to a pleasurable microphone. And, or there is aversion in the mind. I don't like this mic. I feel contentious with this experience. I'm resistant to it. I'm afraid of it. I'm worried about it. Whatever, whatever my way of relating to reality in, a, in one of the forms that compounds the stress of what's happening. The third way, besides grasping or clinging to what I want to happen or resisting what it is that's happened, the third way that I relate to the experience that compounds my stress is that I personalize what's happening. I turn it into a, a story, 
a situation about me. It becomes, it becomes part of some kind of narrative that, that revolves in that revolves the the whole experience around me they're ruining that sound of that car is ruining my talk the sound of this mic is making me sound foolish no one will like me no one will like mission dharma no one will come back next week and poor me it must mean that I really can't hold the space very well. <laughs> I've not managed to create a, an infrastructure of stability here at Mission Dharma. <laughs> I'm exaggerating all these, but we do this. Or we, we project it, the personalizing on everyone else. Everyone else is making my experience unpleasant. This is, one, this is my daughter, the 14-year-old version. This is her, her primary delusion right now. So remember, what I'm describing are what the Buddha called the three poisons that have, if the three poisons are present in your mind at any moment, your relationships will become skewed. Your relationships will become, will move from being harmonious, open, relaxed, easeful, understandable, clear, to confusing, deluded, contentious, dis unsatisfactory, all because of the way I'm relating to the experience. So as a, my daughter is a 14-year-old, and I see this with other 14-year-olds, they tend to not be able to see that what they're experiencing is, uh, is internally generated. They, for example, my wife at age, you know, at this age, and it's very common, my sister was the same with my mom, when my daughter is uncomfortable, she blames my wife and is absolutely convinced that my wife is the cause of her distress. And any, most, many mothers will know that experience, that they're being pretty perpetually blamed for things that they have nothing to do with, really, other than the fact that they're the closest, most easy person to, uh, to blame. This is called projection. But it's really just another aspect of the delusion of personalizing what it is that's happening. Not, a, not an inability to see things just the way they are. And I'm certainly not trying to single out my daughter, but uh, uh, this is, this is teenage, teenage angst. So everything is about our relationship. And I thought of, a, during the sitting tonight, I thought of a few domains 
that seem to be some of the central domains of our stress. And perhaps you can reflect on the areas in your life where you may not be in the most skillful, loving, wise, um, whole, wholesome relationship. Now, for many people, some of these relationships are not just our, our personal psychology. They really have to do with systemic issues, cultural tendencies. Now, for example, culturally, the tendency is for our, our relationship to time, for relationship to time to be one that is uh, tense, rushed. The, the whole culture of busyness. And then the culture of busyness suggests that the busier you are, the happier you must be, the better you are. And so your relationship is to the present moment is to see how much you can fill it. See how much you can get done. And I know I read Mark Morford sometimes here where he, he describes the phenomenon of microtasking, where if there's any little space, you just fill it with something else. Now that relationship to the present moment is, treats it as, as though it's a commodity that you have that is in little bites and that you have only so much of it. So it drives a feeling of lack. Like you can never get enough done. You can never be, you can never be efficient enough. And it has nothing to do with the present moment. The present moment is just a, it's empty. It's just open. And it has everything to do with how you view it. Like right now, if you don't view real time as either too little, too much, you don't view it in any way at all, what happens to the, to the experience of, the, of real time? It seems like there's, there's this kind of childlike openness. Plenty of time, plenty of space. We didn't go on retreat. All we did was remove for a moment a, a chronic way of relating to the present moment as, as what Eckhart Tolle says is a, a pass-through on our way to the next thing. Or as the, as, the, um, as the obstacle to our success, the obstacle to our happiness. Or as the, as the enemy. And that's partly because also systemically, culturally, our relationship to the present moment has been colored by the view that this is not the place where you find relief. You find relief in how things turn out. You find relief at the end of the rainbow after you've accomplished what you need to accomplish after you become who you need to become. And our mind creates this picture of the present moment and just being the pass-through on this very narrow tunnel that comes from the imagined past, passes through here to that place 
in the imagined mythical future where I can finally feel relief. So then our present time, our relationship to the present becomes one of holding our breath. I call it suspended happiness, hostage to the imagined future. What's your relationship to real time? Do you appreciate that real time here, this is the entirety of your life, your living experience. Anything other than this room tonight, this moment where your tush is touching the cush, anything other than this is imagination. There's only this. You are only this. You're not that character that plays in your picture of the idea of past, present, and future, which is a story. You are the living, breathing embodiment of life, expression of life. Is that your relationship to the present moment? Or are you a little scared of life right where it is, right where it touches you? Are you resistant to it? Are you avoiding it? When we recognize our relationship, well, I'll talk about time right now, when you recognize your relationship, you don't do anything about it. You let you allow the, the intelligence, the wisdom that comes from knowing what's going on, seeing what you're doing, seeing how you're relating to things. That itself becomes the cause of your letting go, of your shift in relationship. You don't want to miss, you don't want to have a relationship with the present moment that's contentious, do you? You don't want to have a present moment. You don't want to have a life where you're always waiting for the next thing. It's all about relationship. And if our relationship is such to our experience that we're, that we're curious, we are attentive, we, are, we love ourselves, we will not want to do anything that will add to our stress. So that's why a central way of transforming our relationship to everything is to, is to imbue our moments with as much attention as we can, and of course kindness. A big relationship, the biggest is a, the relationship to this body and its senses, our body. What we, most, what we most commonly think of as ourselves. Now to the degree that there, there, there tends to be a very strong sense of greed and aversion and delusion in relationship to the body. Greed in the body 
toward the body is, is also a, a very strong conditioning. It doesn't help, but it's, it's, we all have it. And it, the conditioning is clinging to our physical body. Clinging, being enchanted, being attached to, being super identified with our bodies. Thinking our bodies are me. And in thinking our bodies are me and being chronically attached to them, this is the greed and, and delusion, identification with the body. Because the body is, doesn't belong to anyone. The body is a, belongs to, doesn't belong to, it doesn't belong to anyone. It is made up of the of conditions of of earth, air, fire, water, of causes. And those causes are, it's not possible to find in this fathom long body any agent of control, any agent of identity. That is a it is a, a selfless process. To the degree that we we take have this sense of ownership of the body, we suffer a lot. We suffer when it ages, we suffer when it gets sick, we suffer when, it, when it's dying. So transforming one's relationship to the body is learning slowly, gradually, lovingly that this body is not me, it is not mine. Now in a conventional way, your body is your body, my body is my body. But from a meditative point of view, from a wisdom point of view, this body is not even a body. It is a, a, a confluence of, of changing processes and conditions that come together for a time and they dissolve. We call it birth, sickness, old age, and death. But if you look more closely at the transformational process of a body, put it under a microscope, and it is in a constant state of flux, held together by a, a thread of conditions, very fragile, very vulnerable. The more one trains one's attention to see meditatively, see more wisely, the relationship with the body eases. There is a, there's an understanding, there's a normalizing of the of the selfless nature of the body. Scientists have a, the advantage of studying the body, and I, I actually brought along one of my favorite little factoid sheets tonight that uh, I try not to read too often, but it, it puts into perspective, and at least it's helped me a lot with, my, with relationship to the body. Humans spend a third of their lives sleeping. Each person has a unique tongue print. There's enough iron in the human body to make one small nail. A cough releases an explosive charge of air that moves up to 60 miles per hour. Sneezes can travel up to 100 miles per hour. It takes 17 muscles to smile, 14 to frown. It takes approximately 200,000 frowns to create one permanent brow line. <laughs> Word to the wise. Most people blink about 25 times a minute, 20,000 times a day. The average person speaks about 31,500 words per day. 
Each breath, we inhale billions of atoms that end up as heart cells, kidney cells, brain cells, etc. The average adult is made up of 100 trillion cells. If you unwound and joined the DNA from the genes of the cells, it would fit in an ice cube. The string would stretch 80 billion miles. This is from the earth to the sun and back 400 times. The body gives birth to 100 red cells, billion red cells every day. Each square inch of the body is populated by 32 million bacteria that are born and die on it, in it. Humans shed 600,000 particles of skin every hour, about 1.5 pounds a year. By 70, the average person will lose 105 pounds of skin. Most dust particles in your home are made from dead skin. The body makes a new stomach lining every five days. body makes a new liver every six weeks. A body replaces a new, he new head hair every two to five years. The body replaces new eyebrows that consist of 450 hairs every three to five months. The body grows new skin once a month. The body replaces with a new skeleton every seven years. 50,000 cells of your body will die and be replaced with new cells, all while you listen to this sentence. <laughs> Radioactive isotope studies show the body replaces 98% of its atoms in less than one year. So in other words, at any given moment, the parts of the body are appearing and disappearing because they are atoms. So if you think you are your physical body, which body are you talking about? So this is not to get creepy about your body and not to think, oh, it's the body, it's not my body. It's conventionally speaking, it's your body and you have to care for it. It's your temple and you want to have a loving relationship with this body. And one of the ways that, that we cause, we compound our stress, if you think of greed, hatred, and delusion, is we often have an aversive relationship to our body. And one of the reasons that, one of the ways that shows itself in that aversion is not necessarily intentional. It's a, it's a, a defense from the vulnerability of being, of having this body that is in this constant state of flux. If you think it's your body, then when it does all this stuff, who wants to, who wants to actually open to the, how incredibly fragile it is and vulnerable? And also, it registers the impact of, of what we call external events that aren't really external. We are constantly experiencing the impingement of our different senses. And, we, and if we don't have the, the capacity, the presence of mind, the clarity, the, the goodwill to meet all of those experiences and experience that, that felt sense of what it's like to be embodied, we jettison. And so our aversion is often innocent, the kind of fear or trauma or some kind of reaction. But that aversion to the body, that, that process of becoming disembodied, it has a terrible effect on our life. It, it, we end up spending so much of our, our life 
in that story of ourselves, in virtual reality, unable to really inhabit our life, really connect with, feel the nourishment, the nutriment of connecting with life right where it connects with us. To feel the peace of, of settling into the, into the support of the earth like we did at the beginning of the sitting. To feel ourselves as, a, as a, a part of something larger, a part of nature, knowing that we're made up of earth, air, fire, water, spirit. When we're caught up in our internal dialogue, the sense of being connected to some kind of universal shared breath or shared consciousness or whatever you want to call it, it's gone from us. We imagine ourselves as so cut off from the flow of life, so separate. And that is partly the effect of a relationship to our body that's resistant, aversive, unable to feel. So as the, that, that second noble truth, what, what actually, what's the prescription for dealing with greed, hatred, and ignorance? with this identification with the body, with resistance or clinging to it, the prescription is to, is to abandon that cause, is to let go, is to be in a loving relationship with reality. See things as they are. Try not to resist. Learn how to experience what you're experiencing. Go to therapy if you, if you need to help have some support for learning how to be embodied again. Do a lot of meditation practice. Put, keep putting your mind in your body. All day long, remember the bottom of your feet. Remember your back body. Don't just be toppling forward into the imagined future. Soon as, you, as long as we're only aware of what's ahead or what we can see, the tendency is, is to lean. Remember that our, our sensitivity is 360 degrees. We are absolutely immersed in life right now. We're not just an observer. Does this make sense? <laughs> that relationship with the body, relationship, spatial relationship, relationship with each other. I was talking about my daughter. Greed, hatred, and ignorance. There's often a transactional quality that's driven by a feeling of lack. I want something. So it all gets bound up in identity. It's not, it's not always about goodwill. It's not always about our shared humanity, our, that spirit of generosity that melts that away. It's often about, about what can I get or what am I lacking? What, what can I get? How can I stay away from this person? This person irritates me. So learning how to have wise relationship. Well, that's a, I think I have to write a book on relationship. Because this is everything. Relationship to the world. You know, if I'm thinking, if, I, if all day long I think of the world as the politics, I, this is what we say. There's so many problems in the world right now. We think, and what comes to your mind? You you go through your little list of of what you've been 
focused on in the news and what the news book, you'd think the world, you'd forget that there's there are forests, there are animals, there are resources, you, that there's so much love, there's so much goodness, so much generosity, so much activism. You'd think there's just the greed and hatred and ignorance in the politicians and that the sky is falling and it's just about two, two ignoramuses you know, facing off for a, for a nuclear holocaust. There's so many beautiful things happening. So the world, it's our relationship to the world is how you frame it. The world is either a story of that's that's broad with a great totality of vision and view, or it's the world is this room. This is the only way we actually know the world directly is again us sitting together. Or any moment that you actually wake up to where you are. How could you ever discount that as as the not the world and think of the world as just the mess that's being that's made? That's just a partial view. So this is not to say what the right view or the wrong view is. It's to look at what is our relationship to the world? Is it how we think about it, how we relate to it? How we relate to vulnerability. Often in this culture, vulnerability is seen as, a, as the enemy. It's seen as a liability. And yet, there is not one living being, not one living being that is, is marked by really the most universal truth about every living being is that they're vulnerable. Our moods are changing all the time according to conditions, situations, relationships. Our thoughts are spinning through all by themselves. Our bodies are changing. There is not one thing in us that stays stable. And yet we interpret our instability as a liability when it's the way it is. That's why I framed that whole day-long thing and retreats that I've been doing for years now called Loving the House that Ego Built. I just did it last Sunday. A few people here were there. But it's how can we not be kind and loving and merciful to ourselves when everything about us is vulnerable? But then when we feel our vulnerability, our fragility, we, we pile on and we say, oh, you're so insecure. So afraid. Instead of loving ourselves up like we would a, a little kid who's vulnerable, we say, toughen up. Get it together. And then criticize ourselves. So this, that is just ident- relationship to our identities, which are so which are tied to these bodies and moods. That they're fragile, and so that relationship has to be turned from from ju- self judgment to love. Otherwise, we suffer. So maybe you, all of you are. I'm preaching to the choir. You don't. You already know 
you already have, you're already on the road to a loving and wise and skillful relationship with yourself. But I'm having to remind myself all the time. That, uh, how am I... And I, the way I remind myself is, okay, what's happening? That's the first thing. And that the, another way of asking that is, all day long, am I aware? That already, that moment where I wake up, I've already cut through whatever chronic reaction I've been having up to that moment. Am I aware? Okay, right now the sky is a little clear because I'm just aware. And aware doesn't happen in the same moment as I hate this, I don't like this. But then I feel the fragrance or the residue of how I've been relating to myself. And and or I see I'm, I'm doing something, I'm washing the dishes, or I'm, I'm walking down the street. And I'll ask myself the second question, am I aware? And what am I aware of? It's another key to the shift of relationship. And then, what's the attitude in my mind toward what I'm noticing? Am I open to it? Am I relaxed with it? Whatever it is that I'm experiencing, am I resistant? Am I feeling contentious toward this person, this situation, this moment, whatever my picture is of my life that may be floating through my mind? Or am I, the other element that, that is very common, am I straining to try to make something happen? Is my effort to affect change, or is it is it is it filled with tension? Am I straining, or am I or am I working in a balanced way, doing what I'm doing with balance? So I, I if it's imbued with this kind of strain to make some, that's greed in the mind. If it's if there's resistance, that's aversion in the mind. If I'm if I'm being driven by the sense of lack, that I'm not enough, that's delusion in the mind, that's personalizing. So I want to know that. Again, as I said before, you don't have to do anything, you just have to know it. That our consciousness, once awareness shines through, is self-correcting. We don't keep holding our breath when we realize we're holding it. Something in us lets go. So that's homework for this next week. Am I aware? What am I aware of? How am I relating to this moment? See if it helps. Let's see if I can leave you with one little quote. Since we're all going back into our work lives, you live in the city, the tendency is to, is to work really hard, be really busy, get a lot done, micro-task, etc., and get stressed out. Any of you relate to that, getting stressed out? So I'll read the Dalai Lama. When he was asked what surprised him most about humanity, he answered, man, or humans because he sacrifices his health in order to make money, then he sacrifices money to recuperate his health, 
And he's so anxious about the future that he does not enjoy the present. The result being that he does not live in the present or the future. He lives as if he's never going to die and then dies having never really lived. So let's really live our lives this week with a loving, wise, skillful relationship to the only life we have, which is the unfolding present. There is no other life other than the transition that you make from the end of this talk to your car, to your bed, I mean to your home, to your bed, to the faucet, to the shower, to whatever it is that you do. Everyone, that's your life. It's not some picture. That's the world. So bring the world to you, to each unfolding moment. And that the passion to be of benefit and to connect will just grow and grow and be a you'll give off the fragrance of peace and caring and skillfulness. So good luck. Thanks for listening. And may our practice tonight and every Tuesday and every day be dedicated to the welfare and benefit of everyone, all creatures, all beings, all worlds, imagined and otherwise. Thank you. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.